0: One of the mistakes I see organisations make is when they've got a customer loyalty card, they actually look at customers with that
1: card as being their only customers. Most companies I've I've dealt with have got that problem in spades, I'd say. I'd say they've got no idea what's happening in lots of cases with their information in their various digital automated solutions.
2: It's a core skill in analytics, isn't it? It's, it's how, how do you tell people their baby's ugly is a, is a <laughs> So hi, I'm Ian Pringle and this is the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty, where we help you make the most of your loyalty strategies by listening to us talk about what we like to talk about most, which is loyalty and loyalty programs. In this podcast, we'll be considering how loyalty data and analytics can be used to add value to the business. So to help you look at this fascinating subject, I'm joined by Anthony Graham and Dickin Doe. So hi, Anthony. Hi, Ian. Hi, Dickin. Hi. Um, So just to get us started this week, um, can we have a quick introduction to yourselves and your analytics story? And just tell us what appeals to you most about loyalty and analytics, you know, what got you started and what really pumped your your tires up at the beginning. Um, Anthony, do you want to start us with that?
0: Yeah, sure. I've been working in customer loyalty and data analytics for the last 20 years. I guess I started off my life as a scientist, making lotions and potions for uh, for Boots uh, in their science labs. And they needed some you know pretty scientific people to help them with the Boots Advantage card data coming in. That's how I got involved with it. And I guess 20 years on in the journey, I've helped clients like Marks & Spencer, Waitrose, p Nestle, L'Oreal, Barclays really understand how they can drive value from their data sets and drive customer loyalty from it perfect
2: and would we still have to call you Dr Anthony Graham is that god no (laughs) it must have come in handy a few times though did it
0: (laughs) you see I I use the doctor thing if it's um, either in academic circles or uh, you get into some conversations where people take qualifications far too seriously yeah exactly (laughs) other than that I just don't bother
1: and Dickon how about you uh, yes, so I started my career at uh, British Airways in the Executive Club, so uh, always an analyst, always working with data, that sort of thing. Went to work for Dunhumby uh, and moved into the retail space, and again, very loyalty-focused, and then um, set up my own business in, in uh, Australia, then went into the consulting industry, and interestingly, much more financial services these days. So um, there's an industry that didn't really take the loyalty thing terribly seriously, but under the guise of customer experience in particular has started to understand the need to really understand individuals and work with them. So that's that's kind of twenty-six years or however long it's been in a couple of sentences.
2: Yeah well thanks and, and I'm I'm very similar. Certainly very similar to Anthony. So I was started off as a as a qualified geologist really. So again scientific background and then when I got into marketing, this is years ago when, when marketing was a mix between the agencies and the loyalty department. So it was it was a mixture of art and science. And I think over time, it's become far more scientific. We've got more data, and it used to be more about the sort of colouring in or the, you know, the adverts and how the adverts looked. I think it's become less that like that now. I think it's much more analytical about um, about what, and much more scientific, which has actually completely suited me, because I've always been about looking at it as a business and um, trying to really understand the numbers. And then I guess, so again, I have 26 years of experience in loyalty, and I guess where I've always focused on is saying I've always tried to be understand it from a business perspective rather than being a supplier because I know we've all worked in loyalty companies haven't we and I think some loyalty companies are suppliers but I've always taken the view of saying let's really understand how loyalty can add value to the business because if you can do that you can get into far better conversations about far better results and far more far more interesting outcomes than just simply being a supplier and being judged on your cost um, and certainly from a partner perspective, I mean, Anthony, that's where we met, didn't we? So you were you were account director at, um, at, at Nectar. And I think all of our conversations were about customers and about added value.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, for me, and it's always around how are you actually going to improve the customer offer or the customer experience? And you know, if you're going to do that, then you're, you're doing something worthwhile. Um, the part which, to be candid, I get quite frustrated about in the data industry is what I call paralysis by analysis. And you get people just churning out numbers and churning out reports without actually a clear direction in terms of how you're actually going to make the customer's life better uh, because of this. And how, what business decisions are you going to be making that's going to actually improve business, uh, business performance. Um, and I think that's, as a sector overall, something we really need to challenge ourselves on. And I was kind of interested in what you said, Ian, around the balance between the art and the science. And it may be a strange thing for someone like me to say with my background, but I do get concerned at times that as a sector, we're getting too scientific mm. and we're taking our eye off the, the need for creativity, both in terms of how we look at the data, but probably more importantly in the world of big data, especially how you're bringing lots of different data sources together and interpreting what they need, mean holistically to make those decisions. And I do get concerned at times that as a, as a sector we're becoming too scientific and too prescriptive in what we're doing.
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, it was an example I was going to bring up later, but um, one of the one of the greatest and and a hero in in analytics of, that I have is is Florence Nightingale because she's known as being the the the, uh, the the first nurse or you know her nursing background, but actually what she was was a was an amazing analyst, and she basically came back from the Crimea War and she she saw that that, that most of the people were dying in hospital had nothing to do with bullets and guns; they had more to do with. Diseases and 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 infectious problems, and she she managed to get the ear of government by showing absolutely beautiful diagrams, by showing exactly who what why people were dying in the hospitals in the Crimea, and if you haven't seen them, I'll, I'll post it underneath. I'll post it with the with this podcast so people can see the, her beautiful diagrams. But in effect, it's exactly what you said. She was being very creative in how she did how she she got the ear of senior managers. And again, I hope that over my career, I've tried to do that where. You know, it's all very well having good analytics. It's all very well having good reports, but unless you can make a point and unless you can gain traction, it's it's useless. And um, she was brilliant. She was the first analyst in that in that sense. And Dickon, do you, do you, do you have a similar view?
1: I think uh, I think the paradox is always that the data and analytics can be very directional, um, and that's what we kind of, why we kind of use it, why we do the work that we do. But it's never actually the answer. So the answer for uh, Florence Nightingale wasn't can I put some nice charts together and demonstrate that uh, that the problem is um, care not bullets and, and those sorts of things um, actually what she needed was investment in putting together better systems and solutions to deal with patients um, so the data and analytics helped but it wasn't an answer to anything but we are moving into an era where data and analytical capability is more embedded in, in, in answers and solutions aren't we so you know, increasing amounts of AI actually having the conversation with the customer, increasing numbers of automated systems making decisions in terms of everything from what we put in front of a customer through to what we do with um, uh, uh, you know how we have a conversation with them and so on. It's 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 now a it's we are in a slightly different era. It's not all just advice and strategy, but yes, I I my, my my view would be yeah we we. Um, have to understand that very little of what's important to the customer can really be seen uh, through a data analytics lens. We're always um, having to play behind that.
2: And so, just moving on for that. So, what are the common challenges? I mean, we've all been in in and seen use of using loyalty data. So, what do you think the common common challenges of of using loyalty data are? You know, what what do you see clients struggling with? I mean, Dickon, do you want to start us off on that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so many. I suppose some common themes are things like. Um, you know volume so uh now that we're taking increasing amounts of um, digital data especially when it comes to things like customer experience where we're looking at every you know individual microsecond of what's going on on a, on a website or a mobile app or whatever so that just simply the volume the wrangling of it turning it into something that can actually be analyzed there's there's, there's a uh, a bit of a problem with that i think um something that's been a perennial problem in loyalty really and and frankly lots of other areas of commerce as well is data currency so lots of information is gathered at the start of a relationship with an organization very little of it is um, updated and maintained you might be very confident in your transactional data with a client but you may not have an awful lot of confidence in the uh, you know name address telephone number type um, type data and information and as a thought that then leads on to a whole bunch of other problems because we're in the uh, you know, a period of extraordinary regulatory control um, mm. of the like we've never seen before. Uh, it's true all over the world, and uh, consequently, getting that stuff wrong has become very expensive. So, I think I think those are those are some of the issues facing um, you know, organizations playing in the loyalty space. And how about you, Andy? Would you add to add to that?
0: Yeah, I'd probably add a, a couple of things to that. I think that's a, that's a good list. Um, I think one of the uh, mistakes I see organizations make is when they've got a customer loyalty card they actually look at customers with that card as being their only customers mm. and they lose sight of the facts that actually they still have many customers who do not have loyalty and how do you actually use the transactional data with the loyalty data to actually get a full view of who your who your customers are and what their different behaviors are. The other um, The other challenge can actually be around understanding what customers are doing actually outside of your stores. So one of the reality is, is that customers who shop with you also shop with your competitors. And I see organizations becoming too siloed in terms of looking at what customers are just doing within their environments, rather than what they're doing outside of the stores. And the other aspects, and it touches a little bit on what we talked about earlier um, with thinking more about the science rather than the art. Loyalty data is really good and really strong at understanding who the customer is, what they're buying with you, where they're buying it, when they're buying it, but it really misses out on why customers are buying it from you and actually how customers feel as well. And I find organizations, again, can get too focused on the transactional parts of loyalty rather than the more emotional parts, which really drive um, customer engagement and customer's attachment with you.
2: Yeah, I think I I think I I there, there's a strong list again and I, the only thing I'd add to those things is and, and I think it's it was an analogy that someone shared with me the other day and I think it's very true of of my experience of working with analytic departments is I think um we we tend to t- generally tend to um I see it like like street lights on a street is that we focus on the the data that we have and the data that we're, we're used to seeing and therefore but then all that creates is a, is a street with variously lit parts of your business and we don't ever look at the dark parts like you said anthony like what's the spend you know um can we can we join research data and, and analytical data together to get the bigger picture of what's actually happening with customers and i i just I, I just think we and then we fall into the trap as you said before of creating reports not inside and um to me now data is so available that I would start with a question of saying, "What data do I need? What do I need to measure?" and then go and get it, rather than by saying um, through the things that Dickon was talking about as well. Rather than saying, "Okay, this is the data I have, and these are the things I constantly measure, and is that actually giving me a view of where where of what the customers are doing?"
1: Um, well, of course you can. So that- technologically, you can. You, you don't even have to do that so much anymore, as long as you can deal with the volume of data. So, um, so I got a story about. Uh, introduction of tagless data capture off off websites. So I was working for a, a a bank. We'd been going through a digital transformation process, and we had recently turned on tagless data collection uh, on sites. And there are a whole series of very important KPIs not being met um, by this organization. We were really really quickly getting to the the um, experience problems that were giving us those those. Uh, those KPI issues um, uh, in ways we'd never been able to uh, do previously. So uh, for instance people tried to log on for the first time to their digital services and then basically giving up and going away because we'd made it incredibly difficult. Uh, there was no amount of design thinking or any other kinds of intervention that were going to find that. We found it because we suddenly had the data but we didn't know what data we wanted. All we knew was we needed good quality voluminous data where we could track lots of different attempts. Um, so yes, it's a. So is the question: we need to work out what we need, or is the question: we need to gather as much as we possibly can and then find the value in it.
2: And invariably, what my experience is invariably a bit of lateral thinking about how you can get data. You can get it, especially now with data with the, the new GDPR, is 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 fantastic. In lots of different ways, and I think people see it as a barrier, but actually things like data portability and you know the, the the GDPR tightened up a lot of things quite rightly on personal data, but actually in some ways it let the hand break off on on unpersonalized data, which actually allows you to access a lot of different information on customers. It might not be individual customers, but it is certainly insight. Um, and so let, let, let's move on to our biggest success story. So let's let's um, you know if uh, if you're sat in front of someone glares a light and says at a dinner party and says, "Tell me when." You've seen analytics make a real difference. Are there any ones that you'd you'd really roll out and say I can tell
0: you where it's absolutely changed the business? Um,
2: who would like to start with that one?
0: I guess it's really a really question of, of of where to start with that question, Ian, because mm. you know the joys of having worked in the sector for over over twenty years. I guess you know some of my projects have touched on everything within the within the marketing mix, from pricing to promotions to uh, to media to assortment. Uh, to store openings, store closings, uh, new product development, and you know, we can, we can give, give examples across across each one of those. I guess you know some which uh, which I've really enjoyed was actually working with uh, with a grocery uh, in one of their major categories, and what they wanted to do was to really do a range uh, range review. And you know, typically, when they do a range review, they'd be looking at you know, what items are selling well, which items are selling less, what the trends are over time. Um, But by bringing in the loyalty data and actually more AI models as well, it allows you to really understand how customers are shopping with the category, how they're shopping in the store, which products are important to them, but also what the price sensitivity is on each one of the items, what the product substitutability is. So if you remove one product from, from your shelf, how likely is the customer to transfer their spend to another product versus not buy it at all? and also how important uh, are those products overall to uh, to high value customers for example and with that uh, with that grocer, so we helped to increase the sales in that category by uh, by 3% through optimizing the the range and also the pricing and the promotional strategy as well um, so that was one which I which I really enjoyed because it actually brought together many different aspects i guess of
1: kind of data analytics and and customer loyalty
2: Fantastic. And uh, Dickens, do you have an example there?
1: Yeah, I mean, so many, again, but there's, uh, so maybe I'll pick on something more recent. Um, so going into a uh, taxation organisation, I have worked with two, so it's not necessarily giving it away, um, and really taking a look at what happens around tax time. So uh, we've all got to, you know, fill in forms and submit them, that kind of thing. A lot of people find that process very difficult, and the ways in which you access the required kind of codes and so on to complete your online application is kind of difficult too. So um so actually just taking a look at that situation with a view to trying to understand how to help people to self-complete um, and uh, redirect them to the sorts of information services they needed rather than um, having to make phone calls or in lots of cases not bothering at all and waiting for the uh, for the tax office to get to get in touch. So um, uh, a lot of data, but a lot of it digitally produced. So a lot of information coming out of tools like Adobe and Google Analytics and so on. But a very firm set of very successful recommendations, making a substantial difference in the amount of inbound contact um, and helping an awful lot of people much more easily complete that their, 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 their process. So that's kind of a recent one. One um, uh, something that I uh, I go back to just because I find it really interesting was turning bank data, so transactional data, into um, economic insight. So it's a piece of work I did with a large bank in Australia. And uh, basically, you've got so much information on what's going on in people's financial lives that never sees the light of day. It's, it's never turned into anything that's useful and interesting. Um, but actually, the uh, um, government engagement we got from from that project, the ability to go back to government and say, you know what? When storms come into North Queensland and devastate, uh the uh local economy these are the knock-on effects for the individuals uh, these are the this is what happens to them in terms of their need for support with benefits this is what happens to their jobs this is how long recovery takes and so on and in ways they could never do um as an economics um, organization so i think i think that's the stuff that excites me you know turning the data into something really useful tangible um and directional um so there's a couple there's one one which has actually just triggered um
0: with me there, Dickon, was a project we worked on actually with a, a healthcare client. And uh, what we did was looked at by uh, by day, the number of searches for flu vaccines um, on Google. And as you saw the spikes, you saw the demand in flu tablets uh, in retailers uh, really, uh, re- really taken off as well. And so actually by building a, a solution which uh took the google inputs as being kind of searches for flu and then feeding that through into the client's distribution model again then helps them to ensure that the stock was in the right places based on what the the customer, customer demand was going to be
2: nice, nice nice the example i'd use is um is back in 2009 remember the the last big big problem we had in the economy um was uh, the credit crunch we had a call from one of our biggest buyers of miles basically and um they called us up and said we we we've seen we've we've got huge problems so we want to make these these three changes to the program and those three changes were going to have a net impact of millions of pounds to to the client I was working for and so what we did is we got the analytical team together in in minutes and we said after the call and said this is the problem what can we do about it so we we instantly did some research and analytics cap- things and kicked off a project to look at Basically, what are what the customers on this Lauder program were spending at this partner, and what were their what was the value of our customers of, the, of on the on the coalition program to that company? And within a week week and a half, two weeks, we went back to them and said, "Okay, you said you were going to make these three changes, but these three changes are going to disproportionately impact your most valuable customers in these ways." And we suggested that this this was a bad idea. And actually, we, if you wanted to save money, we should save money here, here, and here. And that had a far le- less impact on on us as a company, but actually had a far less um, pos- more positive impact on on the the client as well. And it was a classic example of kind of win-win, but it was it was also an example of a, 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 a someone jumping to a conclusion of, of of saving cost and loyalty without necessarily understanding the impact of it. And that was that was my favorite project. That was a really really strong project. The other one, which which fits actually with, with with what you were talking about earlier, Anthony, was my favourite ever project, and it was Dan Martin and Britt Ashton, some people I used to work with in, in in Air Mars. It was their idea, and it was beautiful. Is that we created this segmentation? It was an attitudinal segmentation, and in order to bring it to life for the business, we actually they actually employed five actors to play the role of those segment people, yes. segments, and it was brilliant. They 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 took them to a board meeting and introduced them to the board. And then we did it for clients as well. Partners, we introduced them to partners, and then the, the 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 business loved it so much that two of the people were actually invited to the to the Christmas party for the call center <laughs> because they thought these guys were brilliant. Yeah. Um. What, one one thing I'll take to my grave is one of our, our client directors at one of the clients w- was um one of the banks actually working with with Avios at the time arguing to the nth degree in the bar with one of these actors about why he should take out a card and just completely forgetting the fact that this guy was an actor and wasn't even, wasn't even a customer. <laughs> I absolutely brilliant. love it. It was, a, it was such a beautiful yes. project. So that was Dan and, yeah. I and Brit brought that to life. But it was, I, did, I did love it. I did love it. Yeah. Well, um, what I
0: love about that is customers are real people. And oh, yeah. you know, it, com- it comes back to what we were talking a little bit earlier around the, the science and the art and i see so many organizations that have multiple segmentations so they'll have value segmentations that have life cycle they'll have lifestyle they'll have repertoire they'll have you know etc etc lots and lots of different based segmentations where customers are numbers but the organizations which i see do it best will have for example six customer personas and each one of those customers will be given a name and they get to really deeply understand who that customer is And what's important to them and what's happening in their uh, in their life who their family is what uh, what, who their friends are what they're interested in online and getting to really understand the customer holistically rather than through a very siloed view of this is how much a customer spends with me or these are the different categories somebody purchases with me or this is the last time somebody shops with me and i think it's those organizations that get that real deep flavor about who the customers are are the ones that are the most successful
2: and that was what was so beautiful about this project is that is yeah. that these these personas these actors truly understood and and mm. and empathized with the yes. with the um the, the the particular customer they were representing to the point where at the in the partner meeting when we introduced them to partners mm. partners one of the things we were at, the partners were asking eventually was what could I do to help you get this yes and yeah. and it was it was almost like a conversation with. Customers that they weren't customers. They were they, they were customers that truly understood the personas that were important yes. to that brand. Yeah, yeah. It was a so really. Just,
1: it was gone. Sorry, so yeah, just to, well, just to throw a spanner in the works slightly there. Isn't it also possible that it's a gross oversimplification?
2: Right. Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's true. That's true, Dickin. I just totally. Yeah, it's true, but. If it helps a business address the problems that stare for customers in the face as a as a tool, then I think that's what we're trying to do. Do you disagree, Dick Well, I, I,
1: I sort of did, look. So, I say so early in my career, we, you know, that that was my lifeblood, doing segmentation type work. Um, and uh, I, and I see it. I understand it. I understand why it's got value. What I've always found though was that most companies fail really to take that segment outside of the loyalty group and into the wider business where it might it might be more useful and and so on. Not ex- not not all in all cases, but this companies do. I do think it highlights a slightly different problem though, which at the moment, so while I'm a bit sceptical that you can really understand your customer base in six personas, the um, the flip side of that is at the moment we're in a, an age where data is being increasingly put to kind of automated use without ever being looked at. And uh, so it doesn't in, it doesn't help to make us any smarter about what we're doing as an organisation. So if you want to plug in a recommendation engine on the internet, you no longer need to understand really what it's doing. Um, it will it will work. You you can um, use the same one that uh, Amazon's using for its purposes. You can tune it a bit, and then nobody ever looks at it. It just carries on doing its thing. What you're not doing though is pulling that back in for strategic purposes. You're not saying and what it's telling us is we're, we're um, stocking the wrong stuff or we're losing the wrong, um, sorry, that we're losing the high value customer groups, etc. So I think there's a, say there's a bit of a balance between getting you know, excited about segmentation on the flip side, um, not understanding anything really anymore about the consumer and letting the data do its own work. Um, and most companies I've, I've dealt with have got that problem in spades, I'd say. I'd say they've got no idea what's happening in lots of cases with their information in there various you know digital automated solutions
2: but then what the danger is and again i've done a project on this it, it, the danger is that if you can't aggregate your segments up to a to a management sort of segmentation the end you end up spreading your marketing money everywhere um and um that that's a danger too of but I think I think it's I think it's a balance of both. You need to get it down to uh, a, an operational segmentation which works for certain aspects, that, but then get it up to a management segmentation which people can really. If if a if a company has no idea about their customers because it can't be communicated up from the analytics department up to the senior managers, then I think you've got a problem.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a whole balance between simplicity and accuracy, and what's happened as you know with data science really growing uh, exponentially and capabilities uh, growing dramatically over the last decade. We talked about earlier becoming a lot more scientific. That becomes a lot more accurate, but also it becomes, um, I guess, a lot more micro-segmented or a lot more personalized. And that just becomes too much for business decision makers to be able to consume in their brains for everyday decision making. And as as an industry, I think we've kind of really got a challenge around how we take the really sophisticated models, but how we communicate them in a very simple way, which then drives actionable uh, or business actions and decisions uh, in a way which is easy for for people to be able to consume uh, quite readily, and you know I I think that's something which I've seen I've seen organisations struggle with all the time, and internal business intelligence departments almost becoming too academic for what is required for for the
1: business overall. I was going to say, yeah, you know, I think, that, I think that's an in, been an interesting and very valuable shift. Um, so we, I think we've all come from backgrounds where there was a, a team of sort of data analysts, data scientists who um, did lots of, you know, intelligent, clever sort of project work and then took that information back into the business. And the shift that's happened that I think is really valuable is, moving away from that model and making sure that those people are kind of embedded in the business functions that they that they um, support. It doesn't necessarily have to be completely uh, separate from other analytical groups in a business. You know, it might be that they all come under one umbrella, but actually sitting in the dev teams with the uh, digital design people, actually sitting in the product teams, working out what should be designed or bought or whatever, um, that seems to be a much more effective way of working for the reasons you're describing. You know, it's not it's not a question of I need someone really smart to give me an answer. It's how, how are you part of the ongoing development of this capability?
2: And that culture is really important. Yeah, I think you've got to create this culture of progressive learning, and that's and your and your analytics team has to be the centre of that, because um, the the alternative to that, which I've seen a lot, is where the analytics team. Are excluded often from projects because they could be the harbingers of bad news, or, or, the, or the we've done this before and it didn't work, um, and and I think that um, or that I can prove you're wrong before you've even started, which is which is all that negative energy can come from 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 very well um, from from the analytics team who really really know what they're talking about, but actually can have been marginalised and feel that they can't add value, it's or nice, feel that their voice isn't listening.
1: Nice example of that type. So uh, so done you- be Uh, for Tesco um, looking at understanding product uh, success or likely success based on very early buying behaviours. So people buying a product on special offer discounts, but they're not um, continuing to purchase it. Uh, The wrong sorts of people buying it. So not not the key target audiences, but other sorts of groups of people buying it for value reasons, those kinds of things. They reckon that within about five to six weeks, they can tell you whether your new product's going to survive. Where most brands are investing for years and years of um, brand development for uh, around a product, um, but that's a really tough message. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, we've seen the future and it's bad, you know. Um, yes. Uh, or alternatively, of course, we've seen the future and it's all right, and you should carry on with it. But the potential saving is vast, right? It's it, it, it's it's worth its weight in gold, actually, as information how you communicate it and use it and so on is the problem
2: it's a core skill in analytics isn't it it's it's how how do you tell people their baby's ugly is a, is a core <laughs> <skill>. <laughs>
1: what a lovely
0: analogy and but you know so, <laughs> some of that as well though is actually um who you're communicating that message with because if you're a brand manager that's been responsible for bringing that new product to market and you have uh encouraged your organization to invest millions in in that new product And actually what you're finding out after a few weeks is actually it looks like it's a bit of a dud. That's a very hard message for that person to to, to internalize and understand. Um, Whereas if you are at a more senior level within that organization, it's the exact message that you need to have. Um, And I think there are kind of, as we think through the data around this, it's one of the things which I get concerned about is actually the business intelligence departments actually become the bottleneck of information within uh, within organisations.
2: Oh, I've seen that for,
0: and <laughs> you know, actually, you know, for, for me, it's around how do you actually build an ecosystem where you can, you know, the fashionable term is democratise data throughout an organisation, but you do that in quite a controlled way. So, you know, a category manager will get the information on their own category, but they won't need it need everything else. But the senior management, which we we're just talking about there, with the new product development example they'll get the information which they need across multiple categories. And you'll know, you have the, the alerts which kind of highlight, actually, this new product doesn't look like it's, it, it's performing so well. And what you do when you democratize that information is that, one, you get one version of the truth being used by the organization all, uh, all the time. But you also effectively desensitize where that information is coming from. And you ensure that the right level of information get, uh, get, get, gets through to the right people. And so, you know, I think organizations who find uh, this common complaint around, you know, our analytics team is great, but we just don't get enough from them. Really look, need to look at kind of the latest kind of technologies and solutions in place to say how can we make sure that, you know, the queries which we're asked to do all the time are productionized, and we can democratize that through very, very simple to use uh, use tools for, uh, for for the end user. So the analytics team can then focus on the bigger strategic questions to, to kind of help solve for. I
1: think that's it. I think that's good. There's, there is there is another layer to focus on as well, I think, though, which is that translation layer. So, it's, uh, uh, you know, akin to, you know, the product manager not having a job next week because his product wasn't very good and and, and his boss being quite excited because he can delete an unprofitable product. But So I had, I had one in um, financial services about uh, two years ago. So... Uh, a particular market uh, for this organization looking to recruit and author customers to a particular uh, product set, and they just hadn't done their numbers um the so they didn't know what what would work or what saturation for that product set the market was they didn't didn't have enough information when they made their decisions on recruitment in that market consequently um it was going very very sort of badly wrong, but they literally couldn't acknowledge the truth of their situation. <laughs> because someone upstairs somewhere was going to um, find themselves in a very difficult uh, political position they couldn't accept it so actually what it became was well if you can't accept that there's nothing we can do about it you, you made some bad decisions but how quickly can we spin that into well here's three or four other things you could be doing that would that would make the situation look better by the end of the year in perhaps some other aspects so I think that translatory layer could, could is an area to work on yeah, I, I I
0: support that, Dick. And I, I actually think there's there's something around the interpretation and talked earlier around kind of making making difficult things simple. Um, and again, as we go th- further and further down the scientific path in data analytics, um, I think we're becoming more and more technical in terms of what, what our answers and solutions are. And as a sector, I don't think we invest enough in people who can actually take lots of complex pieces of information, distill and synthesize in terms of what that means, and then present that in a way in which the business goes to want, to want to action on it. And I can call these people the, the interpreters. It's somewhere between the commercial side of a business and the data analytics to really kind of make, make sense of it all and to, uh, to to really help drive drive the business forwards.
2: It, it is a key skill. So just to summarize the end here, so can we each give um three examples, so three pieces of advice to business owners? Let's be... Um, so, what, what are the three things you tell a business owner um, that they really need to do with the analytics to, to get the most out of it? Um, Dickin, do you want to go first?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I think first one would be really bring analytics back into the business. So, if you've got an, a large analytics team and they sit in a room together, you've got it wrong fundamentally. Um, and there are lots of evidence that you've got it wrong. We can we point you in the right direction to talk to the people that have got it right. Those people need to be out in the business, interacting with the business, seamlessly integrated in in um, development processes and those kinds of things. So Could I
2: could I just add to that as well? And I, sure. I I I would absolutely say keep your research guys and your data guys together as well, because they're often in different departments and I don't get that. I don't get why you'd why you'd measure what people are doing and what people are thinking and put them in separate teams.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's right, but actually that's not going far enough. So you so so uh, what they do is part of developing something much bigger. Um, all those people need to be in the same room uh, and mm. doing the same the same kind of work. Or well, At least um, know what
2: they're each doing. <laughs> well, yes, well that's true. Yeah, I mean that's the key, isn't it? Yeah, um,
1: yeah. but but um, but the easiest way again to do that is to make make sure they're all well. I suppose in the same room is is, is uh, a bit moot, right? At the moment, isn't it? Um, they, they're in the, on the same Zoom call, in the same development hub, um, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, so I think there's that. Um, uh, we haven't seen it yet. We're going to start seeing an awful lot more uh, prosecutions in this uh, country and across Europe in GDPR and, and and across the world in other sort of jurisdictions and regulations of data. Uh, you will get caught processing data for things you didn't originally collect it for. You will get caught sitting on data you shouldn't own it, own anymore because it's um, it was uh, it's too old and it's not being used for anything. There's all kinds of things that you're doing almost certainly illegally right now, and it will come and bite you at some point in the future. So um, get smart about your data strategy. Make sure you're not you're not processing stuff you shouldn't be. Would be uh, a thought. And I think um, just to sort of you know, that that uh, analytics group being dispersed to that point more generally, it's just really the the breaking down of silos. If you've um, now even having a loyalty department as a separate entity to uh, the rest of your products and services, you might want to be thinking about how you get those people a bit more involved, um, uh, you know, in the wider business. So I think breaking down um, these artificial silos that we use to organise our companies and trying to work out how to matrix our way to something a bit more powerful. Um, so those would be those would be a few thoughts.
2: Good, um,
0: Anthony. Yeah, I guess I guess I'd probably start with you know what what what's the purpose of actually having data analytics, and I'd break that down into three areas around. You know, firstly, it's around making faster and better decisions. Uh, secondly, actually engage, engaging customers with personalized communications, and thirdly, around improving customer experience. And if I say you know what would be important to actually uh, achieve that, you know, the first aspect for me would be really taking that time to understand how and who makes decisions in your organization and you know what information are they currently using to base those decisions on and what are their gaps and pain points to to to, to make the decisions. And once you have that you then we actually can start to create a straw man of what type of analytics or reporting is going to help them make better decisions um, or, or make faster decisions and you know it's something which we've kind of touched on a little bit here is it's then not just around the reports it's about taking time to really format uh, those reports or those charts or uh, or a a gui in the right way which makes it really easy for the decision maker to use and digest that information and i guess the final piece of advice which i which i'd give them is to really invest the time i call it the, the dark, dirty work and the hard yards but really invest the time in data quality and data cleaning and the architecture so i've worked on many projects where clients have said oh, our data is uh, really clean and uh, and is in uh, a very good state and we just plug it into uh, plug it into a database the, ra- the reality is is that it takes a lot of time to actually get a clean and complete set of uh, of data um, from clients to, to be working on. So actually investing upfront in, in data quality and making sure you've got the right architecture in place which allows you to easily get get to the data uh, and process the data in an efficient way uh, is money money well spent.
2: Good, well thanks, Anthony. I, I think I would just add um, just three small things to that is, is, is first of all I'd just say, Try to create a culture of progressive learning, and by that I mean don't keep doing the same things again and share the information out for the analytical team into other things you know there's nothing better than a lunch and learn or analysis and understanding is not something that is just going up to the senior managers. It should be shared around the business about what works, what doesn't work, what you've seen what you've measured There's a real appetite for it I've always found an appetite for it in the business. The next is if you think you're a if you think you're a supplier but you've got lots of data and you're t- you're treated like a supplier. Use that data to be treated like a business partner. Use that data to understand your customers and understand where, what their business is like, because then you can have a far more toe-to-toe understanding about what value you can add to them, and and become a better a better business. You become a better business, they become a better business, and you move further away from price. Happy days. Um, and the final thing is, I say get creative. You know, Florence Nightingale got noticed because she demonstrated a, a point very clearly. And there's all sorts of ways in which you can get creative to do that. But, you know, not everyone is turned on by a graph. But actually, you know, there's ways in which you can, you can prove, show those points and really get your point across. And often creativity is a way to go on that, um, which is it's providing that bridge between the analytics team and the senior managers by getting them to get it. So thanks very much, guys. Thank you very much for that. So thank you, Dickin, And thank you, Anthony. Thank you. Cheers, thank you. Oh, thank you very much, guys. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share, comment on LinkedIn using the hashtag #TheLordspodcast, and um, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you very much and uh, goodbye from us.